The following audio is from Story City Church in Burbank, California. Thank you for listening. For more information on Story City, you can find us online at storycitychurch.com or on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Story City Church. Amen. Uh, Church, I want to start with a simple question this morning. What is Jesus doing right now? What do you think Jesus is doing right now? I mean, we we don't talk about that a lot in church. We talk a lot about what Jesus has done in the church, right? And rightly so. Jesus uh, emptied himself of his glory, came to earth, took on the likeness of sinful man, lived a perfect life, died an unjust death on the cross in the place of sinners, resurrected to glory again where he's seated at the Father's right hand now. We talk about that all the time, and we should. That's our justification, our righteousness before God. And we talk a lot even about what Jesus will do in returning again, not as a humble servant, but as a conquering king who will end death once and for all and sin once and for all and cast Satan into the lake of fire and ransom his bride, the church, and restore creation. We talk about what he's done. We talk about what he will do, but we rarely talk about what Jesus is doing. So what is Jesus doing? Did you know that you don't have to wonder what Jesus is doing? The word of God has made it clear, Hebrews 7, 25. Consequently, he, Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Right now, Jesus is interceding for you if you are in Christ. To the Father. Romans 8.34 says the same thing in an even more explicit way. Listen to this. Christ Jesus is the one who died. That's what he's done. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. Who indeed is currently interceding for us. We don't have to wonder what Jesus is doing. He is right now, in this moment, interceding for us as our great high priest at the right hand of the Father, where he sits. Now, intercession and interceding is is not a super common word today. In general terms, what intercession means is this. It means a a third party coming between two others and making a case to one on behalf of the other. Uh, Think of it like a child who is having trouble at school and a parent comes and intercedes on behalf of that child to a teacher or a principal. Or or think of many of you who are actors and actresses in our city. You have an agent who intercedes for you, who is your advocate and your representative as you pursue your career. If you are in Christ, Jesus sits at the right hand of God interceding for you. He is your representative right now before the Father. That means he's praying for you actively. He's speaking on your behalf. He's pleading your case. He's your intercessor. He's your representative. He's our eternal high priest. To understand this more, I think it'll be helpful to draw a little picture here of the biblical office and function of a high priest. What is that? What does it mean? What do they do? Listen to this, Hebrews 7, 23 through 25, the two verses preceding our text this morning. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, 
He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. What the author of Hebrews here is connecting is Jesus as our current high priest before the throne of God in heaven to the Old Testament Levitical priesthood that served in the temple. Uh, the The Levitical priests of the Old Testament served in the temple where God's glory dwelled as representatives for the nation of Israel, as intercessors for the nation of Israel to God. And the tribe of Levi was descended directly from Aaron, who was divinely appointed by God to serve as a priest. And as such, they were divinely appointed by God, chosen to serve as priests, intercessors in the holy place, God's presence. And this gave them an access by God's doing to God and his presence that at that time the nation of Israel did not have. So the primary role of the high priest in the Old Testament was as intercessors between God and the nation of Israel. And their primary activity was the sacrifice of animals as daily blood offerings that would atone for the sins of the people. But these high priests and this whole sacrificial system of blood offerings of animals, they were only a placeholder meant to point us to Jesus, who would one day become a perfect sacrifice, and our eternal high priest, how? By laying down his life and shedding his own blood once and for all to atone for the sins of his people, anyone who would trust in him for salvation. And unlike the Levitical high priest, what the author of Hebrews is saying here is that after laying down his life and rising again, Jesus would never die again. He would live forever. He would eternally live to intercede for you and me and his church, anyone who would come to him by faith. Jesus has become the one through whom we have access to God, to his throne, who has made God's throne an available and accessible throne of grace to you and me. He is our high priest. So because of Jesus, we no longer need Levitical high priests who sin and die to intercede for us, Jesus has become our perfect high priest, our eternal high priest. And he intercedes for us eternally in a temple not built on earth, but at the very right hand of God. And not by the blood of animals, but by his own precious, perfect blood that was poured out on the cross for us. Here's what the author of Hebrews is saying, if I could dilute it down. Jesus fulfilled every promise of the Old Testament and became our true and better high priest through whom we have access to God. And then he says, consequently, because Jesus did all this, consequently, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Why? Because he always lives, eternally lives, to intercede for them, for you and me. See, as our eternal high priest, here's a question, What is Christ praying on your behalf and mine? What is he pleading? What is he interceding specifically? The answer is glorious. It's amazing. Jesus is constantly reminding the Father. Jesus is constantly reminding the Father of what he has done for those who have come to him by faith. With deep love and overflowing joy, Jesus is sitting right now at the Father's right hand and repetitively telling the Father that he 
sacrificed his life for sinners and so that all that remains now is a relationship of love and grace and availability, that the throne is no longer a throne of judgment, it is a throne of grace to which we have access. As he intercedes, here's what Jesus is doing. He's constantly hitting the refresh button on your forgiveness, on my forgiveness, on our imputed righteousness by faith in the Father's ear. Always in our heavenly Father's ears are the prayers of Jesus rehearsing what he has done for you through his life, death, and resurrection. And here's the beautiful part. The Father is delighted to hear it. The Son does what the Father tells him to do. The Father wants Jesus interceding. It's a joy for him to hear. So here's what this means specifically right now. Whatever you did last night or last week, however big or small your failures have been, however much you have messed up your life or you feel like you've nailed it, however massive your screw-ups are small, Jesus right now, Regardless of how you feel, if you've come to him by faith, is at the Father's side telling God that he paid the tab for your sin already in full. So the Father can justly, justly, and freely love you right now as he loves Jesus himself. How does the Father love Jesus? How much does God love Jesus? At Jesus' baptism, the Father was audibly heard saying this, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Let this reality sink in. This means that however you feel about yourself before God right now, however much shame you may be carrying, however much guilt you may be wearing, however much you feel unworthy or numb or apathetic, if you are in Jesus by faith, the Father is well pleased with you to the same degree that he's well pleased in his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Good news this morning. God is well pleased with you in Christ. If you are in Christ. I want us to hear how personal this is to me, to you as individuals. You were not saved. You did not come to faith mechanically as some cog in a mega salvation system. Your salvation has been personal. Your salvation has been intimate. God knew you before he created you. He knit you together exactly as you are. He had the son come and lay down his life for you personally because he loved you. The father so loved that he gave for you. This is personal. In the same way that we often hear that you were on Jesus' mind as he died on the cross. You are on Jesus' mind right now as he stands at the Father's right hand pleading your salvation on repeat. And the Father loves to hear it. It's a difficult task to express with words just how glorious this reality is. If we could connect with it, we would realize the riches we are carrying daily. No matter how much we make of our righteousness in Christ, and no matter how much we come to grips with the reality that the very Son of God is pleading our cause right now, we will always undervalue it. I'm always looking for a reason to talk about Lord of the Rings, and I found one this week. In the first book of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, Frodo the main antagonist, is gifted by his uncle Bilbo 
a coat of armor made out of a precious metal called mithril. Mithril. The dwarves mined mithril and gave it to Bilbo on his adventure in The Hobbit. Now, mithril was the rarest and most precious of metals in all of Middle Earth. It was called true silver. It could only be mined from one place, Mount Khazad-dum in Moria. Yes, I'm nerding out. It was originally said to be 10 times more valuable than gold, but had since become unattainable, unable to be mined, and was now thought to be beyond price. Beyond price. Mithril was as light as a feather and as strong as dragon scales, and Frodo wore this coat of mithril that Bilbo had given him on his journey to Mount Doom throughout the Lord of the Rings trilogy, but he had no idea how much it was worth, none. And then one day, as he's walking through the mines of Moria, he overhears the wizard Gandalf. And Gandalf doesn't know that Frodo was gifted this coat of armor by Bilbo or that Frodo is currently wearing it, and he hears Gandalf say this. Bilbo had a corset of mithril rings that Thorin gave him. I wonder what has become of it. I never told him, but its worth was greater than the value of the Shire and everything in it. Now, the Shire is Frodo's homeland. It's a lush landscape full of richness, full of beauty. If you've ever seen the movies by Peter Jackson, you get some picture of what the Shire is. It's this amazing place. What what Gandalf just said to help communicate this to our context, this shirt Frodo was wearing was worth more than Los Angeles and all that was in it. And as Frodo realizes that he's been walking around in an undershirt worth more than his entire homeland, Tolkien writes this, Frodo said nothing, but he put his hand under his tunic and touched the rings of his shirt. And he felt staggered to think that he had been walking about with the price of the Shire under his jacket. What a picture. Believer, every single morning when your feet hit the ground, If you've taken hold of Jesus by faith, you wake up wearing a righteousness that is not your own, gifted to you by faith through the finished work of Jesus, and that righteousness is worth more than Los Angeles and everything in it. It is worth more than the world and everything in it. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 3 would say, it's of greater worth than gold, your faith and the righteousness that comes by it. It's an impenetrable armor against the power of sin, death, and Satan and every enemy of your soul. It's a rite of passage of access to God that you can come to his throne of grace freely. It's a certainty of God's lavish disposition of loving kindness towards you to lead your life. It's a certainty of stability in a world of chaos. On Christ the solid rock you stand and all other ground is sinking sand and that's becoming clearer and clearer today. The righteousness of Christ is beyond price, and we wear it unaware. Have you run your fingers over it? Have you thought recently? Have you meditated on the realities of your righteousness in Christ? See, God has been stirring up in me lately. (laughs) He's been stirring up in me a jealousy for myself and for you that you would come to understand just how much God loves you right now, as you are, 
Not some future version of you that has it all together and you feel like you can approach God's throne in yourself. He loves you now. He loves you where you are. He loves you as you are. He loves you in your mess. Perfectly, eternally, holy through Jesus Christ. And here's the reason I think this is, this is becoming passionate. Some might say to me, careful with all this grace talk, pastor. People are just gonna run with it into sin. You know what? I believe the opposite. I believe, if, I believe if we could truly come to grips with how much God loves us, how much grace he has towards us in Jesus, that we would run to him, not away from him. Because he would be beautiful to us. I think it would begin to manifest things in our lives that are otherwise impossible and unattainable. For instance, responsive love for God. See, when you see God's love for you in Jesus, when you begin to believe this and feel it, love for God becomes easy and natural and unavoidable. It's not guilt-ridden duty, but joy-filled delight in the person of Jesus. And this is the only on-ramp that exists to obedience. Jesus' words himself, if you love me, you will obey my commands. So often we hear that and think, what a way, I've got to obey his commands. How about this? If you love him, you will obey his commands. Love is the root. That's why 2 Corinthians 5.14 says, for the love of Christ controls us. The love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. Easy question, hard answer. Is it the love of Christ that is controlling you this morning? Is the love of Christ, does it have such a grip on your heart that it's controlling you? I believe that Understanding the grace of God would produce that in us. I also believe that it would produce this, a calm, courageous disposition in this storm that we are all navigating right now. See, I don't know if you've noticed, but freaking out is kind of in vogue right now. Is it not? Everybody's doing it. Which means this, when people freak out, it means their idols are being threatened. When people freak out, it means their idols are falling or they're starting to teeter. Christians to whom Jesus is real don't freak out. They don't. You want to know why? Because the thing they worship is not failing them, the person of Jesus. Because Jesus is more real to them than the world itself. Because on Christ the solid rock I stand when all other ground is sinking sand. Because the one they've built their lives around is not threatened or failing. Indeed, he cannot. I want to say this to us this morning. Calm courage is the sacred privilege of those who know Christ. It's, the sac- it's a sacred privilege we're called to steward. And the only way we attain it is through the reality of Jesus on our lives and understanding his grace towards us. Verse 25, again, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Church, if you have come to Jesus You have been saved to the uttermost. That is to say, comprehensively and completely. You've been saved completely. You've not been saved halfway. You've not been saved mostly. You've not even been saved 99.999. You have been saved to the uttermost by Jesus. Now, here's what's interesting about this. 
There is a gravity in my heart and your heart that in a weird way, rooted in pride often, wants to live like this verse says, he's able to save for the most part and then I get to make up the difference. My heart and yours in their deepest, darkest reality prefer earning our way into God's favor rather than receiving it freely. We like to work ourselves up into a good good works lather to where we feel squeaky clean enough to come to God and represent ourselves rather than be represented by Jesus Christ. Why? Because free grace is an indictment on the self-righteous pride we like to coddle that says, I did this, I earned my way. I'm good, better than him, better than her. God, you love me because of me. No, free grace is an indictment. It says this, you did nothing. Christ did all. Christ has done all. He's accomplished your salvation. He's secured your salvation. He intercedes now and it's refreshed before the Father on your salvation moment by moment as your great high priest. Some of us driven by fear, others by pride. Fear that God has only saved us most of the way or hope that he has and we can make up the difference. But here's the problem with that. You can't clean yourself up. You would have by now if you could. I sure can't. C.S. Lewis said a man does not know how bad he is until he's tried very hard to be good. We are to the uttermost sinners. We are to the uttermost sinners. We need a to the uttermost savior. That's why Paul in Romans 7 exclaims at the end of it, what a wretched man I am. Exclamation marks. What a wretched man I am. Who will save me? I need saving. I can't save myself. I need someone to do it for me. And he answers himself. He's given us a rhetorical question. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ who has saved me. To the uttermost. There are two aspects of this uttermost salvation that I want us to see quickly. First, there's a temporal dimension, meaning this. Jesus offers a never-ending, never-ceasing salvation. In verse 24, as contrasted to the priests of the Old Testament who all died, the author of Hebrews writes, Jesus holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. See, in Jesus, your access to the throne of grace, your salvation, it will never sputter, it will never fail like an engine that's running low on gas because Jesus will always live to intercede for you and he never runs out of gas. He never fails, he never falters. So for all of eternity, by faith, without fail, without moment of vulnerability or even a chink in the armor at any point, you're saved to the uttermost through Jesus. There's a time dimension here, but secondly, Jesus offers a comprehensive salvation that reaches the darkest corners of our lives, the darkest part of your life. We all carry these little pockets of our lives that are painful to bring into the light. Many of us carry them in secret for years. If anyone knew about this thing I think, or this thing I do, or this thing I say, or this part of my past that I'm trying to leave behind me, the whole world would leave me behind. I'm such a mess. I'm so dark. Hear me, Christian. Jesus sees your weaknesses clearer than you do, more acutely than you do, more accurate, accurately than you do, and he is the one who loves you the most. The most. The most. 
right now, as you are. It's the darkest corners of our lives that we carry secretly with shame, where Jesus longs to meet us the most, to free us the most. He sees those areas with compassion. They don't scare him off. They don't make him run away, rolling his eyes. They activate his grace. They attract him to come be your savior. Hear me clearly, Christ will not love you more on the other side of getting it together. He loves you now, as you are, perfectly, perfectly in your mess. What a savior. The objections arise in my heart and yours. This seems too good to be true, doesn't it? But Jesus, I'm addicted to pornography. I'm riddled by guilt and shame about it, but I can't stop. At least I haven't been able to. Well, he's able to save to the uttermost. Jesus, I drink too much. Think I might be an alcoholic. I hate it, but I love it. It's the only release valve I've ever found for the pain I carry is in the bottle. He's able to save to the uttermost. Jesus, I have fits of rage. I scream at my kids, my wife, and I can't stop. I can't control it. He's able to save to the uttermost. Jesus, I am crippled by fear and worry. I'm a coward, and I don't know what to do about it. He's able to save to the uttermost. Jesus, my anxiety feels like a prison cell. I don't even know what's going on in my brain. It feels broken. He's able to save to the uttermost. Jesus, I'm depressed. I don't even desire you. My Bible feels boring and heavy like a chore. No healing found there. He's able to save you to the uttermost. Jesus, I've cursed you in my heart for allowing me to suffer as much as I have. He's able to save you to the uttermost. Jesus, I'm self-righteous. I'm prone to judgment and gossip. I love to see the sins of others. I see them far more clearly than my own, and I love to talk about them with other people. And I didn't even realize I was doing that until the pastor just said it out loud. And I'm still not fully ready to admit it. He's able to save to the uttermost. Simple question. Will you let yourself believe this? Will you elevate Jesus to the level of goodness and kindness and glory and grace he wants to be elevated to? Or will you keep him in your human limitations? Will you believe that he relates to you the way that the people on this broken planet have related to you? Or will you believe that he is heavenly, that his ways are higher, that his grace is lavish and ocean, never drained? Church, I believe the good news is actually this good. I've been so excited to say this this week because it's true. I am so convinced that our enemy's primary objective is to keep us blind to how loved we are. 
saved or unsaved, if you're unsaved, if you haven't come to Jesus, the enemy doesn't want you to hear this. He doesn't want you to hear that you can come freely as you are, that Jesus will welcome you, invite you in, and heal you. And if you're in Christ and you're living under a false sense of condemnation, the enemy is trying to plug your ears and your soul and say, you're the exception. You can't be saved. You can't be healed. He doesn't love you like he loves other people. False silenced in the name of Christ. Jesus loves you. He wants you. He desires you. He cares for you. He carries your burdens. He died on the cross for your healing. And he beckons you now. Christian, your joy is at stake in this. Your joy is at stake. See, if you're a Christian and you're seeking refuge in drugs or sex or alcohol or anything else, I don't have to wonder if you're unhappy. <laughs> I know you are. God will not permit a Christian to live in sin and be happy. He loves us too much to let us hurt ourselves. Sin hurts. Are you sick of being failed by your false refuges? Are you sick of waking up in the morning Wishing it was different. Repeating the process over and over and over again as it gets darker and darker and less hopeful. Turn from your sin and come to the healer. He loves you. He welcomes you. He's eager to heal you. And if you're not a Christian, what a shame it would be this morning to hear this from God's word. Have Jesus standing before you, holding out eternal life and healing and not come to him. Look, I'm sorry if you feel like the church has gotten it wrong. I'm gonna be honest, the church is full of hypocrites. It is, you're right, we are hypocrites. We need a savior, that's why we gather. We don't gather because we're good people who have it together. We gather because we are train wrecks saved by Jesus. So yes, the church is full of hypocrites. Welcome to the club. You'll fit in great. Come as you are. Love Jesus in response to his love and find healing. Our God is a God of grace. We are not here for moralism or religion. We're here for new life. Receive the riches that Christ holds out by faith this morning. He's able to save to the uttermost. Listen to this. Those who draw near to God through him. There is no other way to approach God than through your high priest, Jesus Christ. No other way. It's the only way you can come, but through him you can come as you are and receive mercy and grace for your time of need. Draw near to God through Jesus this morning. What a savior. What a love that will never fail. What a love worth giving your love to. What a love worth giving your life to. He is our representative. He is our intercessor. He is our high priest. He is our salvation now in this moment and our salvation for all of eternity. To him be glory in his church forevermore. Amen. The throne of grace is waiting. Will you come? Let's pray.
Jesus, your throne is a throne of grace. Father, your throne is a throne of grace. Jesus, thank you that you stand right now at the Father's side, representing us, pleading your blood. Thank you, Father, that you celebrate with Jesus our forgiveness, that you want to hear it. Father, for any Christian living this day under the weight of false condemnation, in the name of Jesus, free them. Make your grace real and felt and pull them into yourselves in love. And Father, for anyone listening right now who for the first time is saying, I think I'm seeing it. Jesus is good. He's full of grace. He died for my sins and he is life eternal. Father, name the Son by your Holy Spirit, break any bonds that would keep them from coming. Jesus, we come to you this morning for life, for hope, for stability, for courage. Be our healer, be our hope. You are all of these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, if you, if you have accepted God this morning, if you've accepted Christ this morning, we want to know it. I want to know it. I would love to talk to you personally this week about the grace of God. If that's you, if you've accepted Christ, I'm giving you my email, tyler at storycitychurch.com. That's my personal email. Email me, please. It would be my joy to walk with you towards Jesus and the joy of our whole staff. We love you, church.